Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for sticking around for the conversation, Hawaii Talks. We're approaching the six-month anniversary of the Maui wildfires, and while Lahaina gets most of the attention, recovery and cleanup continues in Kula. We get the latest. In our nation's capital, the FBI is stressing to Congress the importance of cybersecurity as cyber threats abound. We learn of a a local year-long webinar that's about to launch, How to Protect Yourself. We hanahoa conversation with the Windward Oahu Eatery after it gets high marks for the second year in a row. And Black History Month next month kicks off with the film festival at the Honolulu Museum of Art. What's in store? You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Next week marks six months since the Maui wildfires, and today we get an update on the cleanup efforts in the Kula area. Our Maui Nui reporter, Catherine Kluwit-Pactel, joins us today with the latest. Good morning, Catherine. Catherine, are you there? Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. All right. I can hear you. Yes. Uh, technical difficulties. <laughs> technical issues over here. All right. Well, well uh, I'm not sure how much you heard, but the government cleanup uh, is done in Kula, and... Um, Phase one and two are complete. The last time I was in Kula, uh, you could see, um, you know, the home foundations that were still uh, burned. And this time it was it was a big difference. You know, the cleanup has made a lot of difference for Kula residents. Um, But they're seeing there's still a lot left to clean up. You know, there's a lot of areas that that uh, government cleanup did not cover. And... um, Kyle Ellison is a community member who's been active in community leadership since the fire broke out on August 8th, uh, right behind his house, actually. And he says the Army Corps cleanup only covered those home foundations. Um, and I talked with him in Kula last week, and he showed me the areas that he's talking about. This is a vacant lot. And the reason I point this out is that house burned and this house burned. And you have FEMA documents saying, hey, we agree with the Department of Health, the state of Hawaii's assessment, this is toxic ash, it's full of arsenic, because it poses an immediate and urgent public health risk, we are going to come in and get this out of here. And then in the very next paragraph, you know, the next page, it says, we do not cover vacant lots. Okay, but what happens when that vacant lot is sandwiched between two houses that you just said are covered in toxic ash, and then all that ash ends up on the vacant lot? They go, it's not what we do. Okay, so again, who does it? So we're doing it. So I was just in the parking lot. I got, I was arranging to have a big 30-yard roll-off dumpster come right in here. And we're going to have a dumpster right here. We're going to have a guy who's donating the use of his tractor come up. Um, we got volunteers that are going to be chainsawing this up. And then he's going to come in with his tractor and scoop up this stuff that's non-chippable. And we're going to come in here and clear this ourself. Wow. So it really kind of shows the, the gaps. For sure. So Ellison and others are advocating for a phase three of government cleanup that is community advised to cover the rest of these fire damages that were not included in that phase one and two of the Army Corps cleanup. And he knows it's not likely to happen. You know, there's really not funding for it. There's not a plan for it. But he and others feel it's really important. Sarah Tekula is executive director of the Kula Community Watershed Alliance. If we have toxic debris and ash. Well, some of what's left behind is toxic debris and ash. And that ends up in the stream. That's not a good thing. If it ends up in the groundwater, that's not a good thing. 
Um, and so what happens to the areas that have not been scraped by the Army Corps, but that have been exposed to the same ash and debris. Contractors are given a map of the property and saying here is where on the property you are to do cleanup and remove debris and scrape the soil to remove the polluted soils and then you're done. And what happens to the land that's falling outside of that that box? And that is something that is yet to be addressed. And I think the people in Lahaina are getting wind of that and uh, are very concerned as they start to realize the same thing is going to happen there. And, you know, what happens to the lawns and gardens and parks in between? And that, that to me is what the phase three is all about is, you know, beyond the ash footprint of a house, what about the rest of the land? And, you know, from a watershed protection perspective, we're really concerned about that. Yeah, I'm just curious, you know, when I, when I heard that they were spreading that um, material, you know, to kind of bond some of those uh, toxic elements and metals, you know, you just kind of wonder you know, how far are they spreading that? Right, that soil pack, um, you know, and, and I don't have all the answers to that, but one thing that the community, the Kula Community Watershed Alliance is is making wood chips out of the invasive and fallen trees in Kula. So along with the fire on August 8th, they had 80 to 100 mile an hour winds there. And so it created a huge issue of fallen trees. Um, and again, a lot of those were invasive trees that were actually fueling the fire itself. Um, and so far, they've spread uh, about eight acres um, of wood chips over burn scar areas to help stabilize that soil and protect from erosion. Um, and it's been really successful so far. It's kept the soil in place through these recent heavy rain events that we've had uh, there on Maui. And the wood chips help absorb that water and, and really just keep the soil in place. So um, at the same time, they're working toward ecological restoration of the native species. So they're actually hosting community seed collection hikes in their own ahupua'a, in their own area, to gather native seeds um, and work on replanting the native forest in Kula um, to, you know, uh, cover those those exposed soils and, and restore that native ecosystem. So um, the Kula Watershed Alliance and Kyle Ellison's nonprofit called Malama Kula that he recently founded have been working together closely in, in the upcountry area and, uh, you know, Ellison talked about doing it themselves. And it's really something that they've been doing since the, the moment the fire broke out. Community members have been putting in, you know, thousands of hours and really millions of dollars in volunteer labor, fighting those flare-ups uh, at the time, supplying drinking water when the water was contaminated, um, food to neighbors in need, clearing those fallen trees and green waste uh, to really also, you know, help prevent... Um, fuel for future fires. And so Ellison established Malamakula to continue uh, that work as well as fill in uh, the gaps of that cleanup process that he talked about. Uh, The organization recently removed 7,000 pounds of scrap metal in just two days from the landscape in Kula, and they've been doing a lot more than that as well. Okay, well, you know, it, it just sounds like, uh, yeah, the, they're, the community's dealing with these gaps, and, and hopefully they can uh, get this round three uh, if they can v- convince the, you know, uh, federal agencies that it's needed. Absolutely. So it's, it's you know, really a community-led effort, and, and everyone's pitching in to uh, do what's necessary in Kula. Ellison talked about, um, you know, really wanting to 
create change for the future so that this doesn't happen again. And and he says that you really just got to step up and do it yourself. All right. Well, thanks so much, Catherine. Thank you. That was HBR's Catherine Cluett-Pactel talking to us about the latest snapshot of the cleanup efforts on Maui. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, ooahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. The oldest school in our islands is Lahaina Luna High School. It was founded in 1831 as Lahaina Luna Seminary by American missionaries. At the time of its inception, its goal was to provide education to a wider population. The land the school was built on was gifted by the wife of Maui's chief. The school started off with 25 pupils and in 1836 admitted its first group of boarding students. Since then, it's widened its scope of academic opportunities for Valley Isle students. In 1839, three years after the Lahaina Luna School began accepting boarding students, the first school on Oahu was founded by King Kamehameha III. The main goal was to educate the next generation of Hawaiian royalty to govern. It also started out as a boarding school, but that came to an end in 1950. At the time of its creation, it was given a very appropriate name, the Chief's Children's School. But for today's Backyard Quiz, we want you to tell us the name of the Oahu School goes by today. Call 808-941-3689 or toll-free 877-941-3689. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing parents and children experiencing homelessness with opportunities to secure housing, including Family Promise of Hawaii. NareetHawaii.com. FBI Director Chris Wei told House lawmakers today that Chinese government hackers are actively targeting critical infrastructure inside the U.S., and there's been far too little public focus on cyber threats that affect every American. His words uh, come as local nonprofit Cyber Hawaii is kicking off a year-long series of cybersecurity uh, webinars this month. The first focuses on new standards for passwords and the increasing importance of multi-factor authentication. The Conversations Russell Subiono sat down with Cyber Hawaii President and CEO Al Ogata in our studios recently. We've heard all kinds of stories of Russian or North Korean hackers, and we've seen some businesses both here in Hawaii and across the country hacked and their data held at ransom. In this day and age, what is the risk for businesses not having strong passwords protecting their data? All businesses are at risk today, um, given the level of threat that we see on the internet and the sophistication. You mentioned nation state actors who are coming after us as, an or, as, a, as a country, but we also have a bevy of cyber criminals who are just after money. 
They basically are out to take our kapuna's money, our you know hard-earned funds, and really recognizing that fact then better prepares us to protect ourselves. And passwords are one of those ways. Uh, passwords have been around since the computers were invented. They've changed in terms of advice on what to do to uh, make an effective password. Previously, with previous generations of computers, which were limited in terms of data size, eight characters was the prevailing standard. And actually, it's, it still is the standard today because we do have a lot of legacy systems that are still in play. So they have to basically have standards that apply to all levels of, of computers. But really, the key with passwords is to make them as long as possible, to make them something that you know and can remember, and then to make them things that are not, say, common. So a person's pet's name is probably not a good password. Their street address definitely is not a good password. And the word password is not a good password. Yeah. <laughs> or one, two, three, four, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And with the level of data breaches that we've seen uh, around the country and around the world, we know that a lot of information is already out there. And the way access is typically granted is through a combination of an account name and a password. And many sites ask people to use their email address as the account name. So because that's a fairly common you know, piece of information, and it might have been disclosed in, in previous data breaches. Having a password that nobody knows is, is the real key. And the standards have evolved over time. Before the recommendation was complex passwords, 5VXT number sign. Mm-hmm. And the realization is with the level of computing power that's available today, many high-speed computers that the bad guys have access to can crack those kind of passwords fairly easily. So the recommendation is longer to the point, because you have to remember what it is, using words that you know actually is better than say, again, a a very unusual string, 5V6 number sign. So stringing together a series of words that may not make sense as a sentence is one of the recommended approaches for creating a very strong password. So something like red, 20, pine, overview, and then potentially changing capitalization, potentially adding a dollar sign. Yeah, yeah. Th- those are ways to, to come up with a strong and effective passwords. Okay, so the longer, the better stringing together words that helps people remember and maybe changing some of the letters for characters or numbers, that's also helpful to, to protect, right? Yes, that's right. And I, I imagine using words that are not necessarily in the dictionary might be a, might be of, of use to, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, using Hawaiian words mm-hmm. or, or Filipino words or Chinese words. I, I imagine those words might add another layer of complexity to your password. Yes, that's correct. And, yeah. and, and basically those words that you use should just be things that you can remember, yeah. you know, that, that makes sense to you as a person. And it be, having it be in another language is definitely a way to go. So I think the more you can do that's unique and something that, say, a computer system might not be able to decipher, to descramble, is good. You also emphasize, you know, a password that is easy to remember. But many of us have hundreds of user IDs and passwords for various accounts, you know, business, personal, whatever it might be. Is there something out there that can help us 
remember? Is there a system we can use? Is there tech we can use to help us remember that won't leave us open to hacking? The the new breed of uh, software tools, combination software hardware, are called password managers. And they're there for that very purpose. Most people have, as you said, hundreds of passwords. And because the recommendation is to make each password unique, coming up with that combination and then remembering that combination can be pretty daunting. So password managers serve the purpose of having all the different passwords that you create combined with the account name and the website or the email system that it's being used for placed in one spot and then a master password being applied. So when you as a person say get to a website and you want to log into it, rather than having to type in the specific password for that site, you type in your master password into the password manager and it auto-populates into the browser field that's there for account name and password. So what it does clearly is, is make it easier for people to manage large numbers of passwords and accounts without having to say, write them down or make them so simple that anybody can can kind of crack them. Is that software or is it something in your browser? You know, like what, what are some examples? Yeah, so it's a combination. It's primarily software and it's supported by your browser. So browsers are able to support certain types of technologies. The applications can support certain types of, again, technologies. And password manager is one that the ones that are effective are the ones that run on multiple platforms. They basically encrypt the data that you give it. So when you create a password and store it there, if someone were to break into your account, the actual data, the password account information is encrypted. So they wouldn't be able to get it by simply breaking into the password manager. And everybody's choice of specific password managers is based on their own risk profile, you know, what they think is the most appropriate things for them. And various password managers are out there now. They vary from free versions that you can just download and use to ones that you can get on a subscription basis. And there are some enterprise systems where it's embedded in there. So system administrators have the ability to control how they're set, how they're configured, and can run reports and audit. Because password strength can vary based on the person who's developing the password, a number of password managers provide audit capability where they'll look at the strength of the password and let the user know this one's strong, this one's not so strong, you know, recommend maybe changing it. And then beyond our passwords and creating strong passwords, this webinar that Cyber Hawaii is part of will also cover multi-factor authentication or MFA. And it seems like that's something that's becoming more and more prevalent. We see it with online consumer accounts where a code is sent to us via text or email. How important is multi-factor authentication becoming? In today's world, it's critical. If you have any information that you consider to be confidential, of value, and that you don't want to have disclosed. The breaches I mentioned earlier have in many cases, taken that first layer of protection, passwords, and put them at risk because somebody could find something out there that you had used before and could break into your account using that. What multi-factor authentication does is it puts another layer of, of security on top of the password management function. So multi-factor authentication basically requires at least two items to be presented to gain access. One is usually something you know, which tend to be a password. The other can be either something you have 
or something you are. So something you have could be your phone, your device, and that's where they may text you or email you a code, and then you put that code into the uh, website or the or the whatever the application is ask, asking for. And then something you are could be a biometric piece of data. It could be a fingerprint, could be a retina scan. I think those are the two most popular right now. And when you combine them, it makes it harder for the hackers to actually get to your account to get access. Again, in this day and age, having that second factor is is really not an option anymore. And I think you see it, I think you mentioned banks, you know, yeah. uh, different online shopping accounts require that. And and I think it's something that Hawaii businesses need to recognize that as they're trying to work with their customers and provide more services faster and, and more effectively, their presence needs to have that same protection. And whether they're protecting their customers' information or their employees' information, it's the kind of thing that is provided by so many vendors nowadays, either as standalone products or integrated into, say, an overall communication system. So Google, for example, has their own authenticator, which supports MFA, Microsoft, same thing, Amazon. So even if you're simply using cloud services with very basic office applications, you can still request and enable a multi-factor authentication. And that protects your employees and your business data from someone getting to it. And then if you have a website and are, say, selling things to other people, same type of thing. You can have their accounts be protected by requiring them to have a second factor presented before they can get into their account. And there's so many practical solutions out there, you know, ranging from, you know, free versions of software to subscription, cloud-based, that a business can, can look and see and, and really find an option that works for them and is not too intrusive, is not too expensive. And I think that's where... As, as more of us are living more of our lives online, yeah. we're, we're finding, I think, that we have to have those kind of uh, protections that we're comfortable with and that are something that when we go to sleep at night, we know, okay, we're not making a mistake in disclosing things that we shouldn't be disclosing. Yeah. Can you share the details of the first webinar of this year-long Fortify cybersecurity webinar series that's coming up? So during the webinar series, we will have security professionals from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, talk to the realities of password management, MFA, and what their strengths are, what you use them for, and how they can benefit businesses of any size. Um, and then we were gonna have a local business talk about their experience implementing these technologies and what they went through, you know, what worked, what didn't work. And then what we hope to do is then be able to answer folks' questions online, but also to be able to give them uh, connection points to both CISA personnel and also the small business who's going to be speaking so they can follow up later. And I think that's really a key with the whole series. It's trying to build a bridge between folks who really research this for a living, they know what they're looking at, and everyday folks, you know, just working on their business, working on their lives. So it's um, really getting from an evolutionary standpoint above and beyond just sharing information to getting into how do you make this work? How do you implement it? And that's the purpose of this series. This first webinar is Tuesday, February 6th? Yes. 2 p.m.? 2 p.m., that's correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. That's correct. And where do people go to sign up for the webinar? They can go to our website, cyberhawaii.org, 
and they'll see the education page and then they can basically read what the webinar is about and click on the link to register. Alogata, thanks so much for your time. Oh, thank you very much for the opportunity. That was Cyber Hawaii President and CEO Alogata talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Again, that first webinar uh, is on Tuesday, February 6th at 2 p.m. We'll have a link to register on the conversation page of our website after the show. You are invited to HPR Generation Listens Trivia Night every first Monday of the month at Village Bottle Shop and Tasting Room in Kaka'ako. Test your wits, enjoy some friendly competition, and connect with fellow HPR fans. Gather your team of up to six public radio nerds and sign up to play at hawaiipublicradio.org slash genlisten. Support for HPR comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, with locations in Moanalua and Kaneohe, offering dine-in and take-out daily and catering, available for business meetings and events. RubyTuesdayHawaii.com Yelp released its annual list of the top 100 U.S. restaurants this month, and a Hawaii eatery made the top 10. Yes, the top 10 for a second year in a row. Adela's Country Eatery in Kaneohe has been innovating ways to become more sustainable. And today we hanahoa our visit to the Windward Wahoo business with humble roots and big dreams. We were there early one morning in 2022 while Adela Vizichon uh, herself was in the kitchen, uh, busy preparing their signature noodles made from ulu and sweet potato, taro, moringa, and avocado. It was a sea of green, purple, and yellow noodles spread out on the counter, being prepared in two noodle machines from Japan. They were humming away in the background, mixing breadfruit and flour. I have to mix it three times. Then after I finish the first round, so the second round is putting the liquid. Then I will check later for the water content, if it's okay. Then it goes to another 10 minutes. Then after that, I'll take it out from here and put it in the machine. But if I feel that it's not well blended or well mixed, then I can run it again. So it's just depending on the feel of the dough. So this machine do everything for me. Then after that, after kneading the dough and all that, we let it rest in the rack for at least 15 minutes or so for the gluten to develop, yeah? And then you dehydrate it. Yes, um, I I cut it, I set it aside, and then we'll dehydrate and put it in the machine over there. To cut the time of making the noodles, I use two machines. I run back and forth. So it's easier for me when nobody's around. We also talked with Richard Chan, affectionately known as Uncle Richard. He's Adela's marketing man. Uh, He's a link to local farmers. And that day we were there, a box of breadfruit was sitting at the front door. I like ulu. Ulu is a lot of fiber, and I like moringa. See, the moringa leaf, we add them in, in there, so you're adding a lot of fiber to it. See, uh, I'm from the old school. Noodle is texture, so give me a good texture. 
I love it. So my thing is that I love ulu, I love moringa. Then the next is kalo and uh, Okinawa sweet potato and avocado. So what made you decide to try and experiment with the local produce here? We go to the big island to work with the farmers about four or five years back. One day we were over there, I see how they drop off the uh, Okinawa sweet potato. 90 days work. But you know farmers, see Hawaii, the Hawaiian farms mostly is like three acres to five acres, small farms. You are so busy tending your farm, working hard. Half the time, you don't have enough time to get rid of the produce. So they dump the whole truckload of Okinawa sweet potato in to, to feed the pigs. I said, wow, there's 90 days work. There's a lot of effort. So we, we, we start to figure out what you can do. That's why we come up with, you know, we make all the bread. And right, we're here at a table and you've got Okinawan sweet potato poi bread, uh, homemade taro banana bread. So you're looking for value-added products, something you can move off the yep. shelf that's going to last uh, as opposed to something that's going to just be in a box and spoil and, right and, and, Yeah, and spoil in a couple of days. So, you know, uh, that's the whole thing. Yeah, you can grow it, but I think we need to spend more effort in turning it into merchandise. But even, even that, the bread, it's not like, that's why I told Adela, you have to make a stable. So what's a stable for Hawaii? Rice, noodle, uh, bread, eh, not that much. So <laughs> you make noodle, people can eat noodle day and night. So you can keep making, you can never make enough of it. And so your whole thought is let's just try and be more sustainable and you don't substitute all the flour in the noodle, you just supplement it, right? Well, you take yeah. out. The whole thing is like, I, you have to keep telling people, we, we never reinvent noodle, we don't reinvent noodle. I just want it closest to a good piece of noodle, pasta, to me it's the texture. So sometimes people say, oh wow, will, will they be sweet? I said, no, we only replace a certain percentage. But see, what I found out is, at the end, you add a lot of good stuff in there. Like I, I get a lot of people come by the dry noodle, for their uh, uncles, aunties, grandparents. See, I'm diabetic. So what they say is, after they eat the noodle, and then when you test the blood sugar, they said there's no spike. But they all tell me that it helps them, so. And, and you know, this, all these things are good for you, you know, ulu, that's very, by itself it's very low glycemic index. And they always tell you, hey, this thing is good for you. So. so the whole idea is that it's healthier. It is a lot healthier and then you know moringa is the next superfood. See the funny thing is that I guess we're so used to it, your neighbor always bring you, you know, uh, papaya soup with uh, the chicken soup with moringa and we don't think much about it. But uh, what I found is a lot of people in the mainland, they, they're so exposed to it. They add it to all the high protein shakes and you know, power drinks and everything else. So sometimes they know more than I do. And, yeah, it's, it's very interesting because, we, you know, we, you know, same like Hawaii, right? we take a lot of things for granted, right? Good weather, oh, that's how it's supposed to be. So I think that's the area that we need to work on and start to recognize the value of Hawaii, everything, the whole package, and do as much as we can to make things better. So you opted to package these noodles and sell them for people to prepare them at home because of the pandemic. You know? At first, when the pandemic first started, you know, it's like, oh, what are we gonna do? Are we gonna die from all this? And are we gonna survive? So uh, the lucky thing is we do have a lot more tourists during the pandemic because 
when they come here, they they spend more time on the North Shore. You know, they're driving around, they enjoy the sun and the fun away from the crowd. So we actually get more customer come in. So a lot of them, they, they eat, after they eat the noodle, they want it the last Christmas. A lot of people buy and send it to the relatives. Like, you know, if you live in Las Vegas, you tell them, hey, I get Ulu noodle. They get all excited. So my brother-in-law live out there. He said, hey, send me some, you know, or he get all his other friends from Hawaii. And see, the whole thing is like, they get every ethnic groups. So they love it. They ask for different things. And we happen to get a chance to learn how to make noodle in Hokkaido. And uh, if you look at the mixer out here, this mixer goes really slow. That, that, that's what I found out about the Japanese equipment. Everything is slow. They said that's, that, that you don't break the protein that much and you, you build the gluten. So then after she finished, she rolled the dough, she got to let it rest for a minimum of about 35 minutes, 40 minutes. But actually, the longer she can leave it out there, better off it is. The texture becomes nicer. And then you cut it. Yeah. And then you dry it. Mm -hmm. Gosh, but this is the only place you can buy the noodles. You're not uh, available in any of the stores yet. No, I think we're going to keep it like this. You know, the hard part is that we want to control the quality. We want to show people that, hey, you know, Hawaii is more than what you see in the service. It's, it's another reason to stop over here in Kaneohe. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, yeah. And that was Richard Chan from Adela's Country Kitchen. We also heard from owner Adela Visitation. The restaurant recently ranked in the top one, uh, top 10 of Yelp's top 100 places to eat in the U.S. for the second year in a row. The small business continues to offer made-to-order plate lunches and desserts, producing noodles from breadfruit, taro, sweet potato, avocado, even moringa leaves. Support for HPR comes from the Chamber of Sustainable Commerce, supporting businesses that are dedicated to the triple bottom line of people, planet, and prosperity, launching its directory of member businesses. Learn more at chamberofsustainablecommerce.org. HPR presents Kamaha'o Haumea Thronis. This concert is a part of HPR's Mele Hawaii Performance Series. Kamaha'o is performing Sunday, February 11th at 2 p.m. For tickets and more information, visit hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for HPR comes from Miller & Lux Hualalai, a new American steakhouse by chef Tyler Florence, featuring steaks and fresh seafood inspired by Hawaii Island. Reservations by searching Miller & Lux Hualalai. Today's Mono Minute focuses on a bird that is often compared to our nene. You may think the Canadian goose would avoid our frequent sun and warm temperatures, but this migratory bird has a long history of vacationing in our islands, and I spotted one on Oahu's North Shore. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart with your Mono Minute. Canada geese are very common birds native to North America but are uncommon winter visitors in the Hawaiian Islands. 
They have long black necks with a distinctive white chin strap and are pretty big, standing up to three feet tall and weighing 12 to 15 pounds. They can be found in any wetland area as well as grassy fields where they forage on aquatic plants, grasses, seaweed, and grains. They're particularly noticeable overhead when flying in a characteristic V formation, honking loudly. While Canada geese are rare winter migrants to Hawaii, they hold a special place in bird lore here as the ancestors of our nene, or Hawaiian goose. Based on fossil DNA evidence, about a half million years ago, a flock of Canada geese arrived on the island of Hawaii and decided not to leave, evolving into three different species of native geese, including the much smaller nene, the larger nene nui, and a flightless goose about four times the size of Nene, creatively named the giant Hawaiian goose. All of these birds are completely different from the four species of well-known giant flightless moa nalo, which evolved from a flock of ducks, not geese, that arrived in Hawaii millions of years earlier. Our beloved Nene is the last survivor of any of these birds, and almost didn't make it to the 21st century, but fortunately its numbers are steadily increasing. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Deborah, featuring hydroflow permeable pavers. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about how hydroflow pavers are designed to allow rainwater to find its way back to the island's aquifers and reduce runoff. for the backyard answer. Uh, Earlier we asked you if you knew the modern-day name of the oldest school on Oahu. Construction on the Chief's Children's School was completed in 1840 on the land where the Iolani Barracks now stands. It was founded by King Kamehameha III as a boarding school to educate the next generation of Hawaiian royalty to govern. At the time, seven families were eligible under succession laws outlined in the kingdom's constitution. Among the alumni, Kamehameha V, Queen Emma, King David Kalakaua, and Queen Liliuokalani. In 1846, the school was renamed Royal School. By 1848, enrollment was in decline as the children graduated or married. In 1850, it stopped taking boarders and became a day school for the general public. In 1967, it moved to its current location on Queen Emma Street and is now known as Royal Elementary. The answer to today's Backyard Quiz. And our winner today, Lori from Honolulu. That's our quiz. If you have one to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Reaching for the stars. It's a metaphor to consider when it comes to black history in this country. We recently talked to Sandra Sims, who sits on the committee charged with selecting the films featured in the Honolulu African American Film Festival honoring Black History Month. She's also the first African American female judge in Hawaii. The festival will feature notable achievements in the areas of science and sports, as well as politics and the arts. It also includes films about Africa as well. The festival kicks off with the film The Space Race. Growing up, I loved the space program. But nobody doing that stuff looked like me. Very few people today even have a clue about black people's contribution to human spaceflight. I was the only black aerospace, the only black NASA because they weren't written in history books. In the early days of the civil rights movement, NASA wanted to show that they were engaged in equality for all. I was told by friends and enemies alike, you're 20 years too soon, buddy. If you qualify and would like to be an astronaut, now is the time. This is your NASA. I don't think America or anybody knew. I was a body, in a way. It was imaginary. It was a lie. Around the same time, there was a Cuban who was the first person of color to fly. The Soviets made that history, not the United States. To see a black man in space, it would have changed things. I'll recognize that one of us would be the first black astronaut. I would have made it to the moon. They were not going to let that happen. Representation becomes critically important to help us keep moving down that path. Back in the day, they were saying that blacks are too ignorant to be flying in space. I'm smitten to turn up there doing all these wonderful things. Black history is American history. We forget it at our peril. That was a clip from the film The Space Race. And here's retired Judge Sims talking about some of the highlights of the film festival at Honma's Doorstuk Theater. The film festival starts on February the 1st, uh, which is a Thursday. We have the opening reception, opening film and the reception. It's at the Doris Duke, obviously. And the, and the opening film is a film called The Space Race. And it's, uh, it was done by National Geographic and NASA. And it focuses on the, uh, NASA's role in bringing in black and other groups as astronauts. And it goes back to, amazingly, John Kennedy's presidency. It starts there which was kind of an interesting piece because I did not know that that was, it went back as when he talked about, you know, going to the moon and so forth, because he began that sort of quest. And there was actually a concerted effort, you know, to bring in, you know, black astronauts because they were, you know, folks that are in the, usually was coming out of military anyway. And so it began there, but then it kind of stalled, you know, after he passed away and, you know, the civil rights movement sort of did some other things. And so, it chronicles 
the first astronaut who was designated for the moon was Ed Dwight. He's now in his 90s, and he lives in Denver, and he's featured in the film. Actually, he became ended up being a sculptor. He's a well-known sculptor now. Go figure. <laughs> and then uh, Charles Bolden, who was the NASA administrator under the Obama administration. So he's kind of like the big narrator of it. And it's, it, it chronicles that time through civil rights, through the training that the astronauts go through, and all of the different issues that came up, some political stuff, you know, cultural stuff. Well, you know, It's the, fascinating. Yeah, I mean, particularly now since there's just renewed interest in space. Yeah, yeah. You know. And and but just that part of history. It was you know I I think of myself somewhat of a st- student of history, but I learned an awful lot from this film, and it also takes us right up to you know the Challenger, and so we're really excited that uh, members from the Onizuka family will be present, as well as Ron McNair, who was one of the astronauts in the Challenger. His brother will be coming to that opening as well, so it kind of pulls it together prepares it for the future because as you say we're now got some renewed interest so it really gives some some context yeah of where we've come from yeah exactly exactly so that's pretty exciting and there's another film that same weekend that it'll be running through the 25th of february so the at the doris weekend it's like thursday friday saturday sunday there's another great film and we we usually always kind of focus on something cultural you know in the entertainment and so forth and we're doing a film on max roach the drummer, jazz drummer, but his role in jazz goes back to the, you know, the 50s, 60s and stuff. But he was also a, a strong proponent of civil rights in many ways. And his career was in some place, some ways kind of diminished because of that, because of the stances that he took. It's a great film, but he's also a great musician. One of the top drummers of all time, and I think your jazz folks here. Yes, we'll probably appreciate <laughs> We'll that. appreciate yes. it and know all about, you know, his uh, work. He also was, uh, you know, Abby Lincoln, the well-known singer during that time. That was, I think it was, she was his wife, or they certainly had a relationship of some sort. And that was sort of in the media as well. So that was good. That was a good yeah. one. And then yeah. your films, are, is it just one and done or is the schedule you have them run a couple of nights? Well, I'm going. excited to say that this time they're not one and done because that's been a, we did that before when the time was limited, but we've now doing the entire month. So the each film will be playing at least twice, some of them more than twice. And so the space race, I think, will be done over that first weekend, primarily because Mr. McNair will be here in Hawaii. So he'll be there for each of the, you know, iterations of that particular film. He'll be available to, you know, answer questions and talk to folks and stuff. And particularly we're, you know, excited about the one on Sunday because he'll have a chance to talk to young people and stuff about going into the, you know, going into uh, aeronautics and, and, you know, STEM and STEAM is all the important thing now. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, when I think of the the history of the Kasigi uh, Airmen, right? Yeah, those pilots, and absolutely. The they and played. there's there's some you know allusion uh, allusion to that in the film as well. They kind of talk about that. We had hoped to be able to get uh, Director Bolden here, but that just just couldn't get here for that. That would yeah. have been really cool. So, what else uh, can our listeners look forward to during this month? There is another great film on the Negro Leagues. Baseball. So we, you know, we've covered, you know, the science, we've got the entertainment, and we've got the sports. And this goes way back. Again, 
I think I know something about history, but I did not know this. And so that's a pretty exciting goes way like in the you know, back in the early nineteen hundreds. I mean there was baseball, you know, being played then and of course, you know, it was segregated and it didn't integrate until you know, Jackie Robinson. But then you this kind of focuses on the the players prior to that and some of the skills that they brought to the baseball that are, you know, emulated and copied today. It was you know, real the baseball players of that time, even the white players, recognize, you know, the skill and talent of the we called them Negro players at that time. But you know, they were constricted by the politics of the time. I mean, for many of them, some of them would have preferred to play, you know, alongside because they were the best players. Right. If yes. you're an athlete, you want to be with the best. You don't want to just, you know, confine yourself to, you know, you want to compete with the best. And so that's what many of them wanted to do. But the politics of that time restricted that. So you get a chance to look at some of that. And that's a that's a really cool film uh, okay. as well. Actually, it was directed by, I think this is one of the ones done by Sam Pollard too. Okay. Yeah. And so, so really, these films uh, that you're highlighting uh, during uh, African American History Month, I mean, they're amazing stories, and they may not have been taught in school, uh, oh, you know, no. growing up no. because um, no. you know, I I just recently you know, got into Paul Lawrence Dunbar at the Tag Theater yeah, and, and that yeah. whole uh, story and how many schools are, are named uh, for him across the country. And yet, you know, it's it's that bit of history that you, you wouldn't You're, ordinarily be exposed to. I did to. not know he did all the plays that he, you know, like I, I know that all the, I mean, I grew up in Chicago. There's a Dunbar High School. We all, and, you know, you read certain of his poems, but I don't think, I don't think, I know we weren't taught the extent of his brilliance and the extent of his writings, just that, you know, he was a great poet. And so we didn't get a whole lot more than that. But I saw that play and it was like, oh, my goodness, I did not realize. Yeah. And I think that's the opportunity that um, our listeners have. Mm -hmm. You go to some of these events, you just get a little bit deeper dimension about the history. Yeah. And people are responding. Well, like I said, we've been doing this now for 13 years. (laughs) And people are really responding well to the, you know, to the films that come in and to the audiences. They're they're engaged. They get, you know, you get to do Q&A with some of the people that are involved. We have one of the directors coming this week as well for one of the other films. She'll be there on uh, Thursday and probably for much of the weekend. And that was uh, Judge Sandra Sims talking about the uh, Honolulu African American Film Festival, which will feature film shorts as well as highlighting the origins of African American studies now taught in our universities. The Honolulu Museum of Art currently features an exhibit of African American prints it recently acquired. Again, we were hearing from retired Judge Sandra Sims, who spoke about the film festival that kicks off tomorrow. Look for links on the conversation page of our website later today. Well, that does it for us now, but up tomorrow, we plan to hear from HBR's president and CEO, Jose Fajardo. He'll share the details behind his recent announcement that he will be stepping down. Leave your feedback on our Talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. 
Find our shows online by searching for The Conversation. Uh, also on po- uh, Spotify or Apple or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for The Conversation.